Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Rundy, this is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with my very good friend, Sergio de la Peña. Sergio just stepped down as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense covering the Western Hemisphere. Sergio had a fabulous career before going back into government. He served over 30 years in the U.S. Army and is a friend of mine and someone who's got a lot to say about security and about the future of the United States. And so I'm really glad to have my friend Sergio on my podcast. Sergio, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. So, Sergio, could we, let's start with the following. Tell us about your early life and then how you ended up in the U.S. Army. I am an immigrant from Mexico. Came to the United States when I was five. My father was a bracero. Those were contract workers that were replacing farm labor for the soldiers after World War II that took advantage of the GI Bill. My father used to work as a cowboy during the spring and as a farm worker during the rest of the year. When we came to the United States in 1961, he did away with the cowboying and just started working on the farm. And when I was in about the third grade, he decided that if we wanted to get money for clothing, that we had to pitch in. So we started picking cotton. So it became a family affair. Mom would go out and pick cotton with us after school. And then on the weekends, we'd all pick cotton together. That was the most miserable job that I ever had the opportunity to work through, but it was a means to an end and it taught me that even as a little kid, you can contribute. So I worked all my way through school starting seriously. That was only after school activities. So I started working when I was about a sophomore. I would work after school at a welding shop and then I continued with odd jobs all the way till I went to the university. The summer before I went to college, I went to Oklahoma. Since we hadn't been in school, my father never went to school one day in his life. My mother made it through the sixth grade. They neither learned how to speak English because we lived on a farm in New Mexico and you had everything you needed. So there wasn't a lot of socializing, so they just never picked it up. But in school, we picked it up. And so I knew that if you did well in school and if you had good grades, the natural progression was that you went to university. Unbeknownst to me, You're supposed to do some upfront planning and make the applications and get your financial packages in order and all that sort of thing. So I didn't do that. So I came back from the wheat harvest the two weeks before school started. And I went to New Mexico State University where I thought I was going to go. And they told me, uh, sure, you can start in the spring. I could not. So a friend of ours got me into Eastern New Mexico University where my brother prepared my list of classes, one of which was ROTC. At the time, I had hair down on my shoulders, and he said, Dad, don't worry about it. This was, remember, this is 1974. Vietnam was coming to an end. The volunteer army was going to kick in in 75. It was just a class, so they didn't cut my hair. I was in ROTC. I did it for a couple of years. And then after two years, I got an invitation to go to the University of Iowa. When I got there, they said, okay, you got to cut your hair. That was a major traumatic experience. Cut my hair, and then I knew <laughs> I was in ROTC and on, on my way to being commissioned. The next summer, which was between my junior and senior years, I was invited to go to Airborne and Ranger School. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I didn't realize that Ranger School was as hard as it was, but I did it. 
and I finished airborne and ranger school as a cadet, which prepared me quite well for the next 30 years in the Army. That was my entry into the Army. It all had to do with my brother filling out my schedule. Once I was in the Army, I found out that I really liked it. So it was a great experience. So for those of the folks on the podcast who are just listening to this, so Sergio is 65, but Sergio looks like a million bucks because he works out all the time and he's a power of example to all of us. He is really healthy and is someone who's a power of example to me. But Sergio, you've got glasses on. You ha- Tell the story about when you first got glasses because I think it's an important story as well because in addition to your brother, someone else helped you along the way. So when we got to school, in those days... If you didn't speak English, you were put in the back of the classroom. And I couldn't see that well. I didn't know I needed glasses because you, know, you don't know what you don't know. So I flunked the first grade and I just thought I was a dummy, I guess. I, I didn't even know I was flunking or passing. I, I just, you know, I was in school, I was learning English. Everything was coming at me fast and furious. So I went at the first grade again. And the teacher told me, you can't read the board, can you? And I said, no, ma'am. And she says, I'm going to come see your parents this weekend. And I thought I was in trouble because if I got in trouble in school, we didn't get any grace from my mother and father. If they knew that we were in trouble in school, we paid for it at home. Usually the belt came out and, uh, you know, they just took corrective measures and figured out, you know, what was it that we did wrong later? But it was a very pleasant visit by the teacher. She took me to uh, Roswell, New Mexico and took me to an optometrist, put glasses on me. And it was like opening a whole new world. I could actually see. It was incredible because my vision is something like 20 over 100 or something. It's terrible. When I got my glasses, I could see. And then I went from being adult to making mostly A's and maybe one or two B's. Uh, and that, that persisted throughout my high school career. And it was uh, somebody caring enough to notice that I was squinting too much and figuring out that, well, maybe uh, I wasn't as dumb as I thought I was. What was her name? Name was Mrs. Burridge, and I don't know what happened to wow. Mrs. Burridge, but that was that would have been 1962. So I lost track of my teachers in East Grand Plains Elementary School. It was a wonderful experience, and and one of the things that I noticed that for every one or two bad things that happened to me, about five or six or ten good things would happen to me. People would always reach out and push me along, make me work harder than I thought I could achieve, and. Uh, I was very grateful for all those people that did that for me. And I went from not speaking a word of English to doing okay in English. And uh, I've been able to maintain my Spanish fairly well. So I've been very blessed. Oh, your Spanish is fabulous. I got to keep up on my Spanish. So Sergio, let's go back to the Army. So what is a ranger? You jump out of airplanes, right? Jumped out of airplanes. Uh, that was just teaching you how to jump. And then you go to ranger school and you apply the jumping. So... You have big drop zones where they drop you off. There's big open fields. When you go to ranger school, they make the fields significantly smaller. And if you don't do everything that you learned, the uh, pain that you feel is landing amongst trees. And uh, if you don't plan your landings, as soon as you get out of the plane and guide yourself in the direction of the drop zone, you're going to hit trees. So that was motivation enough for me to always get to the landing zone and not land in the trees because it was interesting to watch people that did land in trees and the canopy just kind of covers it treetops, you can see it as they go into the trees. But I, I never had that experience. So I was grateful for that. Well, you loved serving in the army. And I know because okay. you and I have talked about it before, but you served overseas in the army in a number of different places. Talk about some of the places in Latin America where you served. Weren't you in Venezuela for a time? I was. So in the, in the army, I was an air defense officer for the first half of my career. And then I was a foreign area officer for the second half. 
in foreign area officer assignments, I did two years establishing army to army staff talks between the US and Spain. Then I did two years of traveling all over South America, setting up uh, command post exercises. That's how you train partner nations on how we do staff processes. Then I went back to be the Army Attaché of Venezuela from 1996 to 1999. So you were there at a very key moment when Chavez won. I was. So I met Mr. Chavez. He used to disguise himself when he was president as a lieutenant colonel. They used to call him El Comandante. And I found it fascinating that I was talking to a head of state who was wearing a fake lieutenant colonel's uniform because he was the president. And uh, I was a real lieutenant colonel. He was an interesting fellow. So I was there during the time that he got elected for the primaries. And I was there for the runoff as a, an election observer for both. And I was there at his inauguration. I pretty much knew he was going to be a bad egg from the beginning because we were well warned by a lot of our counterparts that he had some very unique ideas that modeled what he had picked up from Fidel Castro. You told me a story about that you knew he was going to win. Tell the listeners about you knew even before he was going to win. There were a lot of well-known folks who were also at the embassy at the time who weren't necessarily sure that he was going to win, but you did. And tell our listeners, why did you know that Chavez was going to win the election? One of the things that you have at the embassies are, due to the nature of our jobs, people that get out and people that stay in the capital. People that stay in the capital get, I think, a biased view of what these elections projected. I was all over the country. I did a lot of traveling on the ground to many, many different places, to other large cities, to small towns, to the border at the time where they were having issues with the Colombian guerrillas. So I had a pretty good feel for what was going on in the country. And what I saw was outside of Caracas, and even in Caracas, in certain places, Chavez was definitely the person who had the momentum. And so it gave me at least a pretty good feel for the fact that he was going to win. Obviously, you don't know it's a fact until it happens, but every indication was that he was going to win. So we had a pool, and I missed the pool by one point. The person who won the pool, his last name was Chavez, and he threw a dart and stuck it on the board, and he, he beat me by a point, which really annoyed me because I had done a lot of analysis, and I, was, I felt cheated out of $300. <laughs> but one of the things that we found is that the folks that were inside the embassy that didn't really get out and about had this idea that, there was no way that Chavez was going to win, and they bet, I think I bet that he was going to win by something like 12 points. I believe he won by 14. And the people in the embassy were betting that he was going to win anywhere from 5 to 10 points, or that he was going to lose by 5 to 10 points. That's a 25 or 30-point spread from where it actually ended up. The traditional politicians. Chavez came up with a new party. Venezuela had two parties, and then President Caldera created a third, and he's the guy that was responsible for Chavez running for political office because in Venezuela there was a law that said if you were a felon, you were not supposed to run for president. But President Caldera gave him an exoneration and he was able to run. And because of it, he was able to win, created a fourth party, divided the opposition, uh, and he won. That's wild. That is just wild. So you were served in Venezuela. Did you serve in other places in Latin America in the army? I did. So. I also served in Chile. I was the Army Section Chief there when Mr. Pinochet was taking a vacation in Europe and England, to be specific, when he was under house arrest at the orders of Judge Garzón from Spain. The same Judge Garzón that is now providing legal advice to uh, a gentleman 
by the last name of Saab, who's over in the Canary Islands, waiting extradition to the United States. So Mr. Garzon went from being this exemplary judge who was big on the International Criminal Court and the defender of the meek and the mild nut to defending criminals. It's very strange. He's really had kind of an unusual odyssey and it's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. So then you retired from the army. It was clear to me that your family loved army life. You got married. You have four children? Five. You have five kids. You only have five. You have five kids. You actually were asked to go back into government service in 2017. Talk about the job you just left. You were the deputy assistant Secretary of Defense covering Western Hemisphere. What is that job and what were you doing in that job? So that job is responsible for defense policy for the entire Western Hemisphere. To put into perspective, there's nine deputy assistant secretaries of defense that have a geographic responsibility. I covered half of the globe and there's eight counterparts that covered the other half. My deputy assistant secretary's office was one of the least funded of all the nine. And that's because we are a collaborative, prosperous, and secure hemisphere. We don't have the millennial long differences of opinion you have on the other side of the globe that require the possibility of, of kinetic action, meaning force on force, hot wars, or hot conflicts. In this hemisphere, we are pretty good about keeping that type of conflict in check. So we have responsibility for ensuring that we coordinate how we defend the homeland, how we defend our neighborhood, our friends and partners in this side of the globe. But just to compare and contrast it, we do not have the millennia-long conflicts that you've had from the nascent Ming dynasty, the czarist, communist, and post-communist Russia, the differences of opinion between the children of Abraham, the big pie that was Africa that was sliced and diced after the Berlin Conference. We don't have the family quarrels that you had out of Europe. So we're actually very blessed in this hemisphere to be of three origins. We're African, indigenous, and European. And I think that given that we have a younger history and a more common culture, I think that that facilitates our ability to be more collaborative in our endeavors in this hemisphere. Now, there's always going to be friction, and it's not without its challenges because we still have problems with terrorism. We still have problems with guerrilla wars that luckily we haven't had any for a good while. We just don't have state-on-state conflicts, but we do have criminal transnational organizations such as drug traffickers that are causing a lot of problems. And if you go on day-to-day impacts that you have on the United States, that's one that is still very concerning because we have upwards of about 70,000 overdose deaths in the United States due to drug consumption, either through plant-based drugs or synthetic drugs. So you are in Venezuela. What kind of security challenges does Venezuela present to us today? Fast forward from 22 years ago. The challenge that you have with Venezuela being in the state that it's in is the instability that Venezuela causes to the neighborhood. If you look at the number of refugees that have come out of Venezuela, it's somewhere in the vicinity of 5 million, of which 2 million are in Colombia. So imagine taking a country of 45 or so million people and then stuffing an additional 2 million. You know, extrapolate that to the United States where we're 330 million. So what we have agreed on Venezuela with our partners is that it's a regional problem. 
And those most affected by Venezuela are the immediate neighbors. You have Brazil that's got a border with Venezuela and you've got Colombia that's got a border with Venezuela. But that doesn't mean that the migrants coming out of Venezuela don't pour into the rest of South America. For example, in Peru, I believe there's somewhere in the vicinity of about half a million, half a million in Ecuador. Argentina has maybe 100,000. Brazil has like a couple hundred thousand. I have to go back and check the numbers, but those are ballpark numbers for those countries. So what that means is that you're having these very desperate people showing up at your doorstep and they're putting a severe strain on social and medical services of these countries where they come into. And you're creating a sense of xenophobia that we hadn't seen in Latin America in a while. People are saying, what are you, this, the government, you know, the citizens are saying, what are you doing to protect us from all of these migrants that need attention and are now competing for resources with lawful citizens of those particular countries? So that's part of the challenge. And in those groups of people, there are some that are mischievous and get themselves into all kinds of trouble and are also mixing and coordinating with other in-country groups that want to create instability. In Chile, in Colombia, you've seen some of the activities that have been taking place. Some of the people that come in with those crowds are also to some degree involved in some of those challenges and some of those riots, if you will. But to be fair, that, that's a very limited, very small number. What about if I said you Central America as a security challenge? You talked about sort of, there seems to me there's a whole series of challenges in Central America. Talk about that. Central America is characterized as a grouping of very young democracies. So given that you have these small countries and they have small budgets and narco traffickers have huge budgets and just tremendous resources, they put a severe strain and challenge on the law enforcement authorities and the military forces of the Central American countries in particular, they become very vulnerable to corruption. You've got all sorts of transiting that goes through Central America. So the drug trafficking routes, they follow the balloon theory. If you are able to stop the flow of traffic on the ground, then they go to the air or they go to the sea. And so most of the time they're going through every means of conveyance that you can come up with. And those people that have the responsibility to keep drugs out are constantly being challenged. So that's what you're facing in Central America. And if you look at cartels like Jalisco Nueva Generación, if you look at the Sinaloa cartel, if you look at the Setas, they're working in collaboration with the drug trafficking gangs in these countries and they're able to provide them with a lot of resources and some of these drug trafficking gangs challenge the state as far as controlling turf. So these are some of the things that we have to take into account on how we collaborate with the partner nations to confront the drug threat, especially the drug trafficking that takes place going through these countries. Now obviously what that also does it destabilizes the country so that people say, mm, I think it'd be better for me to leave. And oftentimes they come here. So this is part of what's been feeding some of the migration caravans to the United States. Plus there's also been some evidence of groups organizing those caravans so that they can create instability in the United States as well. Talk about our relationship with Mexico. 
you must have had a lot of ongoing conversations with Mexico. Have you said to me, you know, there's obviously a lot of collaboration with Mexico and what are some of the challenges there and, and talk about some of the partnership there? With Mexico, the military to military relationship is very strong. We've been working at that for a long time. I can talk personally from the time I was at U.S. Northern Command from 2006 to 2008. At that time, the Fox administration had cooled its relationship with the Bush administration due to 9-11. And you remember the whole ugly story about that. I do. When President Calderon came to office, he wanted to turn the page and, and establish a closer, tighter relationship with the United States because he saw the importance of having good relationship with the neighbors where you're constantly exchanging information and making sure that, that everybody's situationally aware to keep an eye on the neighborhood. So from the Calderon administration to the present, we've been on a steady trajectory of strengthening the relationship. Now, from the military perspective, it's very, very strong. From the political perspective, there's a certain level of caution that President Lopez Obrador brought to the table because he has a different view on some of the things that we view as priority. He's been very good on immigration. He has not been so good on drug trafficking. Drug trafficking and drug violence, especially inside Mexico, has gone to unprecedented levels. So that's not good. But President Lopez Obrador does not want to use the military in a law enforcement role, or he wants to limit the ability of the military to play that role. So there's always these adjustments being made on what's the most effective way to optimize on the capabilities that the state has to go against the bad guys. Unfortunately, I'm sure you've seen some of the videos where you've got 30 vehicle long co uh, convoys of armored vehicles that are run by, in this case, the Sinaloa cartel, and you have drug traffickers dressed in military uniforms with, with heavy caliber weapons, and they control certain turf within Mexico. So that's concerning. President Lopez Obrador's response to that is he believes in a policy of hugs, not bullets. So the abrazos no balazos is, you know, by our estimates, not that effective. You can't hug it out with the bad guys. We just released a report that I'll send to you, Sergio, that was released today that my colleague, Romina Bandura, is a senior fellow, looked at the Amazon basin. I don't have to tell you that it's not just Brazil, but it's a whole series of countries. I think it's eight countries that share the Amazon basin. And that the issues, the environmental issues, cannot be divorced from the issues of security. So if I said to you the Amazon and security issues, could you just kind of respond to that as a topic? Yeah, so one of the new ventures that drug traffickers have engaged in now is illegal gold mining. And that is devastating to the environment. It is absolutely horrendous. And because they have so much money and because the state does not always have the reach where they can go and adequately mitigate the impacts of narco traffickers doing illegal gold mining, it gets to be yet another set of problems that you have to contend with. Now, and then in some cases, you have people that are out there that are not necessarily narco traffickers, but are people that want to get involved in the illegal gold trade. It has gotten so bad that they can bring in backhoes and caterpillars and heavy equipment into the Amazon with water pumps, and they are spreading mercury all over the rivers because you needed to separate the gold from the ore. And then from that illegal gold trade, you create small towns in the middle of nowhere, and it's a place to turn your gold over. It's a place to go get a beer. 
and it's a place for men to go out and entertain themselves. And what that does is it brings in young ladies that are sometimes put into indentured servitude. But you're also destroying the living daylights out of the environment because when you do these gold mines the way that they're doing it, they're just scratching the surface and they're destroying everything on the surface and they're, they're polluting rivers with mercury and all sorts of other chemicals. Another problem with the narco-trafficking, when you're processing cocaine, you're using kerosene, you're using hydrochloric acid, you're using gasoline, diesel, cement, all sorts of stuff that just gets dumped into the rivers or just left in giant pools. So that's the economic and ecological devastation that some of these activities are causing throughout the Amazon base. It's wild. So, Sergi, you just left government. Thanks for your service. You had a wonderful service in the Army. Thanks for your service in the Army. And thanks for going back to serve for three plus years at the Department of Defense. What's next for you? Is it fair to say that hopefully you may have some public service in your future? Yes, I think there's definitely that in the future. I feel like I can still work. I enjoy working. I'm in a good place and the old 55. Right, 65 is the new 55. Yeah, something like that. Now look, Sergio, I think you've got a lot of service in you still. I think, you know, as I have someone who knows you well, you are, I think, one of the fittest, you know, physically fit people I've ever met. And I think you're a power of example. And if you're not exercising, when you meet Sergio, you want to go exercise and you eat right and you live right. And you got a lot of service in you. And I know you got a, a wonderful family who's behind you. So I think you've got a lot of giving still to do. And I hope you do. So I wanted to say thanks for your service. We're really appreciative of your chance to share with us how you see the region and some of the security challenges. One last question about China. How do you see China in the Western Hemisphere? We shouldn't leave this conversation without talking about China in the Western Hemisphere. You just spend a minute on that. Oh, absolutely. China is one of the biggest concerns that I had in my previous job. And the reason is because they are growing in economic power. They are the industrial base. And they're looking for how can they feed that industrial base and how can they literally feed their own people. So the things that the Chinese are looking for in this hemisphere is food, raw materials, and markets. So the problem that you have is that the way they go about getting access to those things. Now, first they get permission to come to your country, then they start building infrastructure, and then they start tying all that infrastructure together through IT systems, one of which is 5G networks. And the 5G networks open up that particular country to exploitation by the Chinese so that whatever you know, they know. And so you've got to be cognizant of that. And that presents a challenge for us because if we are working with our partner nations to exchange information that's considered sensitive or some that we would like to keep confidential or between our bilateral or trilateral or, or multilateral countries, it becomes a challenge because the Chinese have access to it. So that's one of the concerns that we have. Plus, if you set up a port system that allows for big ships, commercial ships, you can also use it for military ships. And if you have an airport that can handle large aircraft, they can be civilian or they can be military. And the Chinese, as we've seen, do not have any heartburn taking up a claim on certain territories. Look at the artificial islands they built on the South China Sea. One of the things that the Chinese are very capable of doing is using their tremendous economic power to give out loans. The problem becomes then that the loans come with interest rates. 
And to give you one example, if you're country X and China is buying your product, let's say in this case, it's fish. You're buying a lot of fish from country X and then you say something uh, that is not considered appropriate by the Chinese. They say, hey, you know what? Um, your fish has COVID. We're going to cut that market. And then you have an employment problem that is significantly of greater concern to you because you're a smaller country. And they do that all the time. Also, if you don't make your payments, they do take collateral. And so the classical example is Sri Lanka. They came, they put a lot of investment into a port. And Sri Lankans couldn't pay for the port. They took over the port. So you have to be careful about what it is that you want the Chinese to do. And the Chinese are constantly growing. And one of the concerns that we have with this hemisphere is that we've been working with a partner nations on security things. And security things are expensive. And the Chinese are operating in a very secure environment, so they can just come in and be the good guys, you know, in, in, in air quotes. So we constantly have to engage with the Chinese. And here's a challenge. You know, the fact is that the Chinese are still the number one market for the world for manufactured goods. And the concern I have is, we have just seen through COVID what impacts that manufacturing base can have if they're the ones that are producing pharmaceuticals, if they're the ones that are producing vaccines, if they're the ones that are producing PPE. It's not a good place to be dependent on another country. And it's not just in those areas. We have to look at all of the different materials and specific, very niche manufacturing capabilities that they have that we've become reliant upon. So we need to reevaluate our manufacturing base and ask ourselves if we're willing to cede that ground to the Chinese. They're not without challenges. And one of the things that I've learned from a friend is that our competitors also have bad days. So they have their own bad days. But it's going to be concerning because when they have bad days and they start getting nervous, it has a tendency to make them a little more paranoid. So there's a lot of dynamics at play with the China-U.S. relationship, and it's one that I think will occupy a great deal of our time going forward because they are competitors. And their goal is to be the preeminent power in the United States. The biggest concern I have is at a point where because of some of our spending, we get to the point where the dollar is weakened to the point where the Chinese currency becomes the primary currency, and then we're going to be in a different place. We're going to be in a bad place. Yeah. These are some of the biggest concerns that I have. Look, Sergio, this is fabulous. I really appreciate your time and your candor. And thanks for your service. And you'll be hearing from me. Well, thanks, Dan. I really appreciate it. And I thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks, my friend. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 